You're listening to the Midwest Marketing Orange Hour podcast with your host, Brett Matice. All right. My first question, I'm not going to put this out as like an original thought because I heard it somewhere, but the guy, he said, if we had to start Earth over again, you know, just totally from the caveman era before people were around and we did it all again, there's some things that he thought would make it like we would still learn how to fish and we would still probably create campfires at some, like we would learn how to do that again. But he's like, some things wouldn't make it, like maybe paddle boarding probably wouldn't happen again. Do you think cars and vehicles, we would create those again? Or does it seem like a one-time thing that we just hit the nail on the head and got it right this one time? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it's something that uh, we got right uh, people always have to travel, whether it be by horseback or, or boat or, or automobile. I think it's something that it's a necessary part of our life, and I think we'll always have transportation and we will always have automobiles. I agree. I think it just seems like, like you said, we need to travel in, in the area that automobiles have opened up for us. And the, the way that we live our lives, it just seems like kind of an indispensable thing. Well, you just take a look. You know, if you want to back up, take a long time ago. I mean, when you just, when we as uh, civilization went from, from foot to horseback, I mean, how much more ground we could travel, you know, how much more we could do and see in a short period of time. And then you add from horseback uh, into automobiles in the early 1900s, I mean, it opened up our whole country exactly. to everybody. Yeah, going back to your horse statement, it's uh, when the horses arrived on the Great Plains, it drastically changed the way people lived. I mean, most people were, um, when we think of Native Americans now, we think of, you know, traveling with the herd of buffalo and or bison and, you know, kind of being transient, nomadic type of people. They weren't like that before horses for the most part. And then horses kind of change the landscape. And the same thing happened for automobiles with um, people here in the United States, like you said, in the early 1900s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, before we get too yeah. deep into it, I'll have you introduce yourself. So the voice you're hearing right now is Troy Claymore. Can you give everyone, like, the down and dirty of who you are, where you come from, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I grew up in a, a – actually, I grew up in the middle of nowhere. If you <laughs> want to know the truth, it was in uh, north-central South Dakota – I grew up on a ranch in uh, right on the North Dakota-South Dakota border, uh, also bordering the Missouri River, which was kind of nice. I could roam from state to state very easily, and I had the river on one side of me. And I'll clarify, it was actually on the west side of the river, for those of us that live in South Dakota. Yes. <laughs> That's important, <laughs> the yeah. South Dakotans. Know. Yes, that is correct. So anyway, I grew up on a ranch uh, north of Mobridge on the west side of the river, Spent uh, most of my young life growing up uh, riding horseback, chasing cattle, putting up hay, all that stuff that goes along with it. And then uh, uh, from there, uh, uh, went to college in Rapid City. From there, I went back into the ranching industry back at home and then ended up in the car business. Absolutely. So, so have you ever heard, it's kind of, it's a quote that is associated with Henry Ford, but everyone's like, kind of like, I'm not sure if he really said it. But the quote is, uh, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said they wanted faster horses. 
And ironically, you worked with horses and training horses. And if that wasn't a wonderful transition, that was that's a good pivot right there. But uh, <laughs> how did you get into training and working with horses? I know you had some experience with your childhood working with horses, but how did you get into it like really deep? I think it really uh, is something that, you know, comes from generations of, of your family. You know, when I look back on it, uh, my great-great-grandfather was, was uh, a, you know, a horse, en- horse, horse enthusiast. My, my great-grandfather was in the rodeo world, uh, raising horses and training horses. My grandfather uh, ran several hundred horses, and including a bucking string up in, in North, South, North and South Dakota. Um, you know, it's just something that we always had, uh, it was a necessary part of ranching and rather than going out in, in our philosophy, uh, my grandfather's philosophy, my father's philosophy was rather than going out and buying somebody's unknown product that, uh, we raised our own. And when we raised our own horses, obviously you had to be prepared to, make them the best that they could be. And, you know, it just, it's hereditary, I guess, if you will. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. What does a typical, for someone who's not familiar with horses, what does a typical training progress of a horse look like by the time, you know, completely not saddle broke to saddle broke? Of course, there's lots of intricacies, but if you hit on the highlights of what that looks like to actually train a horse. Well, I think the first thing you need to do is you need to be able to, to, um, halter the horse to be able to control it and you know over the course of time when they're young it's about a three or four year process before you really have something that's sustainable and something that's proven you're probably four years into it but again first you got to be able to control it and by controlling I mean being able to to put a halter on it lead it around uh, get it used to you and that takes takes time to earn its trust and then from there you know, uh, adding a saddle slowly without any weight on it and walking them around with that process, and that takes time. And then eventually, you know, throwing a leg over the saddle and hoping for the best, you know. Sometimes, hoping for the best is yeah, right. Sometimes it's, it's simple, and sometimes uh, you end up on the ground. Yeah, yes, I've been there, absolutely. I actually broke my wrist, fell off horse. Not training, that was a trained horse. I just fell off because I wasn't paying attention, I don't think. But uh, anyway, kind of moving as the progression of the timeline, there was this movie that came out in the 1980s called The Color of Money. I think it was in the 80s. Um, that's before I was born, so I had to Google. Um, so the, the main character, the protagonist of the movie, his name is uh, Fast Eddie. And you have some familiarity with Fast Eddie, so how do someone who grew, grew up, as they said, in the middle of nowhere, learn about and, and meet a famous pool hustler? Well, this actually is comes from my transition into uh, from ranching and training horses to, to ending up in the automobile industry in Denver, Colorado. And uh, the person, the first person and the only person that I actually worked for in the automobile industry, when I say the only person, the same dealership, my 10 years or so that I was down in Denver, the man that actually owned the dealership at the time was, was Eddie Kells. And he grew up in Detroit, Michigan, which is ironic that 
you know, that's where the automobile industry started was in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, Eddie grew up uh, on the streets of Detroit, Italian, young Italian man. You know, the rumor has it, maybe a little bit involved in the mafia, you know. <laughs> uh, worked at Marola Chevrolet uh, with Doug Spedding and Joe Girardi. Uh, Joe Girardi's in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's greatest salesperson. So, I mean, pretty strong background there. But backing it back up, uh, before he got into the automobile business, he was on the streets of Detroit and, and hustling pool. And what part of what he did was is he was mentored by uh, a gentleman named Minnesota Fats. And anybody that's been around pool knows, you know, who Minnesota Fats is. But these gentlemen, Minnesota Fats and some of the other pool hustlers, would bring Eddie into a, a underground bar room, if you will, in Detroit, Michigan. And somewhere along the line through the course of, of hanging out in a bar, uh, they would find people to place bets with that, of course, Minnesota Fats couldn't get a, a, anybody to play pool against him in, in, on a bet because of his reputation, so he would bring Eddie in, and he'd place bets on the table that Eddie could beat, you know, these older gentlemen, pool hustlers, if you will, in a game of pool, and that's kind of how he got started. Well, throughout that, somewhere along the line, Minnesota Fats ran into the wrong guy to place a bet with, and, and of course, Eddie beat him, and he felt, the, the gentleman felt he was set up, and and for that, took him out, took Mr. Eddie Callis out back in the alleyway and broke his arms. And that's kind of how the story of color of money, some of his life uh, throughout the, the, the pool hustling world uh, came about in the movie. So, okay, so that was before, like, so he pulled, and then he moved to Denver yes, and, yes. and owned the dealership, and that's uh, when you worked for him. Yeah, he went from hustling pool into the automobile industry, uh, as a lo actually washing cars and then selling cars at Marola Chevrolet, and then from Marola Chevrolet, uh, came out to Denver and purchased his first uh, dealership in Denver, and throughout the course of his history, ended up owning... I think it was over 17 different franchises okay. or dealerships. Yeah, so, so pretty big operation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So yeah. you said Joe Girardi is, is in the Guinness Book World Records for the best salesman in the world. How did they classify him? Did he, you know, just sell more? They just tracked his sales? or How they calculate it is, is obviously our industry is month to month. Every month, we're probably one of the only industries that you go from zero to hero or hero to zero every 30 days. So it's one month at a time. Everything is recalculated. Most businesses will, will look at the year end. Uh, in the automobile industry, it's, it's one month at a time. And Joe Girardi had sold, I believe it was over 70 units in one month. And if you calculate that on uh, 26 selling days in a month, you know, divided by the 76 cars, that's, you know, somewhere around four cars a day. Yeah, that's a Which, good. That's a good day. You know, that's a very good day. You know, so I don't know the exact number, but I know he is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's greatest salesperson, and it was based on he had sold the most cars in one month, and then also translated to one year. Interesting. So. Very interesting. Let's talk about cars. So, was there 
a time in your life where you're like, I'm interested in cars? Was it, you know, were you kind of a, a grease monkey growing up or did it happen later in life where you're like, I think I could really get into this? You know, I never was part of any of my life of being in the car business. Uh, I think it was kind of ironic that growing up in the ranching business, uh, transportation was a necessity from a tractor at nine years old, driving a little nine-end Ford tractor uh, to, to having to, to pull horse trailers, drive pickups, so on and so forth. And we always had reliable transportation because it sometimes is a matter of life or death when you're talking about uh, taking care of animals, being able to get to them, being able to get them to the vet, being able to, you know, when you live out in the country, but anyway, the bottom line was, is I always had a pickup to drive. When time I was 14, I got my learner's permit. You know, I had a pickup because I had to. I had to run to town to get parts for my, for my dad, you know, when they broke down in the hay field. I had to bring him lunch. I had to, to you know, be able to hook onto a horse trailer and go check cows, load horses up. So I always drove, but I always had a pickup. But... Through the course of the next four years, from the time I was 14 until I was 19, I had totaled out four vehicles. Really? So I guess it was kind of meant to be that I was in the automobile industry. I had rolled three pickups, and I dropped one in the Missouri River. When You're I was, kidding me. No, I went, it was kind of strange deal, the one that I dropped into the river, uh, uh, I was opening water holes. So I was young, you know, 16, 17, and I was in a hurry because it was, you know, Christmas holiday. I was going to go do some Christmas shopping, but before I could go Christmas shopping, I had to do my chores. Well, part of my chores was making sure that the cattle had water. Well, I had to drive down to the river, which was about three miles, and open up water holes. Well, instead of parking the pickup, on the shore and walking out and opening the water holes, I thought I would just, because we had several hundred head of cattle, so I had to open a lot of water holes. So I thought I would just drive out there and drive along and get out and open one and drive the next one and open one and drive the next one. Well, when I got to about the fourth water hole, um, the front tire broke through the ice. And of course, there was no way for me to get out. So I walk home get the tractor, come back down. I'm going to just pull it out. I get my brother. He's going to help me. And by the time I walked home the three miles, got the tractor, got my brother, went back down to to pull the pickup out, it was gone. Really? But there was a big hole there. There was a big hole there. (laughs) You could actually see the top of the the back of the pickup, the taillights. Barely could see the taillights sticking out. So, yeah, that was quite an adventure. My my father was not really happy. Yeah, with I me. can't about imagine the feeling you had when you're like, I'm going to have to tell dad about this. Yeah, but you know, the funny part was, is I thought, well, no big deal. We'll just pull it out, you know, and, and it'll be just like normal. He'll never know. Exactly. Well, the problem was, is I couldn't get it out for one. So we had to get a wrecker out there. And when we pulled it out, when it went through the ice, every possible side of the vehicle was dented as it went through the ice. Oh, I suppose. So yeah, I yeah never, not going to get away with that one. Never would have thought about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so, crazy. So anyway, that was, you know, one of the four. Uh, so I guess I was just meant to be around 
lots of vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your first gig your, was your first gig in Denver, like you said, working at the dealership with Eddie Callis, or was there a gig before yeah. that? That was your first one. No, that was my first and only gig in Denver, Colorado. Was as I uh, was coming back, actually training uh, when I left the ranch uh, in the mid '80s. I didn't know what I was going to do. South Dakota had been through some pretty rough times. We had uh, cattle business, cattle prices dropped in half. Uh, we had about a three or four year drought. Uh, and my dad decided uh, that, you know, somebody's cattle got to go. We didn't have enough feed. We didn't have enough water. We didn't have enough to take care of all, all of our cattle. So mine were the ones that got sold. Mm. And he said, well, Son, you need to go figure out what you're going to do with your life. So I'm like, well, I'm really not sure what that entails. <laughs> but I think I'll head down to Phoenix. I had uh, uh, some relatives down in Scottsdale, and, and I had a friend that owned Arabian Horse Ranch down in Scottsdale. I thought I'd stay down there for a little bit and try to figure out what was next in my life. And I trained horses for him for about three or four months, uh, Arabian Horse Ranch down in Scottsdale. And it was, I think, February, March, April, May. May came along. It was about my fourth month there. And uh, all of a sudden, it was 120, 125 degrees out. And part of the process down there with, with keeping horses in shape and, and exercising them stuff was swimming them in a swimming pool. And I started thinking as I was doing this at 125 degrees, I'm walking around, leading a horse around the outside of a swimming pool while he's swimming and it's 125 degrees out. I don't, there's something was wrong with the picture. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, I don't think this is for me at that point in Scottsdale, Arizona. So I left that and packed up and I moved, to, I didn't move. I was actually driving through Denver. And uh, I had a Ford pickup, still from the ranch, you know, still driving a pickup. And I'm like, well, I really don't need this pickup anymore. Uh, I'm not pulling horse trailers. I'm not feeding cows. I'm not training horses. Uh, so I think I'll, I'll trade it in. And I stopped in Denver at a Nissan dealership and uh, just happened to be owned by Eddie Callis and uh, traded my pickup in for a Nissan Sentra. And the guy working there said, what are you doing? And uh, I said, you know, I'm really not sure. I've just left Scottsdale, and I'm heading back towards South Dakota, where I'm from, and I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> and throughout the course of the conversation and buying the, the automobile, the Nissan Sentra, they convinced me that I should sell cars. Really? And yeah. Just on a, it was literally just on a whim yeah, like that. He looked at me and he goes, you, you know, uh, you know what? I, you ought to be selling cars. And I looked right at him and I said, you have to be kidding me. I'm a farm kid from the middle of South Dakota. Um, really don't know anything about it. I don't even really like to talk to people. You know, I grew up around cattle. I grew up around horses. They never talked back to you. You didn't have to talk to them if you didn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> and now you want me to talk to people? You know. So anyway, uh, no, just seriously, you should be selling cars. There's something, you know, 
you have that that you know people will believe you. You have you're, the you're believable. Yeah. You know, you're honest. You're just a farm kid from South Dakota. People will love that. You know, and so he said, "Look, you don't have to do anything, but uh, we got a training meeting going on on Monday. You're here for the weekend anyway, right?" And I had a hotel room in Denver. I was going to stay there for a while, for five, six, seven days. I didn't know how long, but uh, so I ended up coming in on Monday for a sales meeting. And ten years later, I'm running the dealership for John Elway. That's absolutely so, incredible. Yeah. We've done a lot of these podcasts. We've been doing them for over a year. And everybody, when you ask, like, the, the career trajectory, they go, like, I would have never guessed. That is probably the craziest one where it really is just completely on a whim, just passing through. And, um, yeah, if you would have been like, I kind of like this pickup, who would have known? <laughs> so that is absolutely unbelievable. Really cool. Yeah, if I wasn't trying to save gas, you know, it probably, who knows where I'd end Exactly. Up. That's absolutely awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, like you said, working for John Elway, um, mm-hmm. As people around the Colorado region, Colorado or Colorado? How would I? Colorado. Colorado? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Colorado. You, never, you never know. Um, so Colorado, people around that area, you know, he is like really big in the automotive industry. He, is, he does well. Is there something that he does and his business partners do that kind of separates them and makes them stand out above the rest? Is it name recognition? Is it a little bit of both? Um, what are they doing that makes John Elway and all his dealerships really, really successful there? Well, I'll take you back a step. It's the same I started with. Uh, Eddie Callis was getting to the point where um, he was at the end of his career. Um, he had sold several of his dealerships, and he was getting to the point where he was going to retire. And at that point, uh, John was looking for his next adventure, I guess. He was coming to the end of his football career. Eddie Callis was coming to the end of his automobile career. And... Uh, just by happenstance, it ha- uh, John Elway's the one that ended up buying the dealership that I was at. And the first thing I noticed was is uh, I wasn't sure I was going to stay because the 10 years that I was down there, the history is is when, you know, somebody new comes in, uh, you know, they start replacing people from the top. Well, as a GSM, I was pretty close to the top. So I had thought, well, John's buying the dealership. I'm probably out. You know, the GM was was out. I'm next in line. You know, uh, I heard through the grapevine that they were going to be bringing in one of their people from one of their other dealerships that was going to be the GSM. Well, my 10 years of, of, of running dealership, running that dealership down there, I knew the guy that they were bringing in and I knew that uh, he really couldn't hold a candle to what I have done and accomplished in the business down in Denver. So I put in my two weeks notice. And John came in and he had a meeting, you know, before this. I'm buying the dealership. We, you know, we want, we need everybody here. You know, we're going to make some great changes, so on and so forth. And I listened to his meeting. But anyway, after... I found out that he's going to bring somebody in to replace me. I thought, well, maybe it's time for me to move on. So I put in my two weeks' notice, and on, I think it was the last, second to the last day, John come walking into the dealership, and he said, Troy, can I talk to you? Well, you know, on Monday, he had just played football on Sunday, yeah. so he was kind of limping around a little bit, and I'm like, you know, 
Okay, John, you know, you had a great game Sunday. How's things going? What do you want to talk to me? I was trying to make small talk with him. He said, I need to talk to you. He said, can you come up to my office? So I go upstairs to his office, and he's, go ahead, sit down. He gets me some water, and I sit down at his big leather sofa and glass table, and he's pacing back and forth. And he's like, so I understand you don't want to work for me. And kind of took me off guard. I'm, I'm not quite sure why you think I don't want to work for you. And he goes, well, I heard that, you know, this other gentleman that we're bringing up, you don't want to work with him because you feel like, you know, he can't get the job done that you're doing here. And he said, why is that? And so I talked to him for a little bit, and we were, conversation was going. He was still pacing. I said, John, if you're going to try to talk me into staying here, maybe you should sit down because this might take a while. <laughs> he stops pacing at that time, looks right at me, and he goes, Troy, if I sit down, I won't be able to get back up. And it was like, <laughs> it was one of the last year of his career. I think it was, yeah. you know, in 90, it was probably in 96, 97 something like that. So he was at the end of his career. Yeah, for sure. You know. So anyway, bottom line was, is he said, so what you're telling me is, is if I don't bring this gentleman in and I keep you as the GSM, that you will work for me? And I said, I would love to. He said, done. So... Perfect. At that point, I was working with John Elway. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Which very is interesting. Crazy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, getting back to the rest of your question of, I think, what was it? Yeah, I was just wondering, because like he is, he's, they, they do very, very well down in Denver. I was wondering, is it something that they do that really sets them apart from a business standpoint, from a dealership standpoint? Or does John Elway really just have that unbelievable name recognition in Denver? I think it's a little bit of both. I can tell you when they came in, the first thing they did, they didn't spare any expense changing the dealership. They spent a lot of money remodeling, brought in nothing but but the finest, you know, uh, furniture, the finest tile, the finest. I mean, everything was 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 first class. So they really changed the appearance of the dealership instantaneously. I mean, that was within the first four or five months. The second thing that they do is is they believe in inventory. It seemed like our inventory grew three times in a short period of time from changing the name from Rocky Mountain Nissan to John Elway Nissan. They believe in inventory. They have pull at the top. They can get the inventory. Um, you know, it was just amazing to me how many cars that we could put on that lot versus uh, me running that operation under Rocky Mountain Nissan. But, and the other thing is, is his name recognition is, is he is Mr. Colorado. He, oh, absolutely you know, he is. Yeah. So, so I can tell you this, uh, if the Denver Broncos lost on Sunday, we didn't sell a car on Monday. It was really that fluid, that yeah, man. You could feel it. You could feel it. On the other hand, you know, if we won a game or won an important game against a rivalry, Oakland Raiders, you know, Chargers, got into the playoffs, something like that, we would come to the dealership on Monday morning and we would have several 
emblems missing off of cars, license plate frames missing off of cars, anything that had John Elway's name on it could really? be could be potentially gone. That's fascinating. <laughs> that is, like you said, he is Mr. Colorado. He's a celebrity in his oh, own yeah. right, um, yeah. especially in yeah the Denver and Colorado area. Did you work with any other big name celebrities selling cars during your ten years there? Or is that you know is Denver not a hot spot like maybe Los Angeles or New York would be? You know, I don't know uh, celebrities as much as I would say professional athletes. Professional athletes, which they're a celebrity in their own right. Yeah. You know, and and uh, we had a lot, obviously, uh, with John Elway owning the dealership, you know, the Denver Broncos pretty much bought cars from us. Yeah, that, so. that seems like a good teammate thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> it was very interesting. Yeah, so, okay, I'm not going to ask you to throw anyone under the bus, but I will ask you, was there one per, like one professional athlete that you were like, that was a really nice guy, like a genuinely nice guy, because, you know, they can sometimes get a bad rap for being short with people, but was there one person that stood out to you and you're like, he was genuinely a really good guy? You know, I, I, I disagree with your first comment. I, the Most of the people that uh, we dealt with from the Denver Broncos were really, really kind, and they really, really appreciated you taking care of them, and they really appreciated you treating them like a normal person, you know, because they spent most of their professional career you know, being treated differently, you know. So that was one thing that John always made sure that we did was is that we treated him like an honored guest. We treated him like a human being. We treated him like one of our relatives. We treated him just like we would anybody else to the best of our abilities. So. Yeah, absolutely. But to answer your question, was there one? Yeah. Uh, one that comes to my mind, and I don't know if, you're probably not old enough, but the Denver Broncos were in their heyday, and they had uh, a pretty good group of receivers. As a matter of fact, they were called the Three Amigos, and one of them, one of the Three Amigos, was Vance Johnson. Okay, yeah. And he's about, my, <laughs> believe it or not, he's about my size. So he, we'd been talking, John brought him in, and of course, me as a GSM, I'm the front guy. So I personally would make sure that, that the Broncos were taken care of, we had the right person, and I would continue to check in, and I would do a lot of it, uh, a lot of the dealings with them myself personally. But Vance come in, and to my surprise, you know, watching him, going to Denver Broncos games, obviously we had tickets to every Broncos game. We sat with the, with the spouses and the girlfriends, and, you know, we had frontline tickets right behind the bench. But watching Vance Johnson and the Three Amigos from the sideline, I mean, these guys are intimidating out there in the field. And Vance walks into the showroom, and he wasn't much different than I was. You know, maybe an inch or two taller, maybe 10, 15, 20 pounds heavier. But I always remembered his calves were about as yeah. big as my head. <laughs> Yeah, and for people who don't know Troy or can't see him here in the podcast, he's not a, a NFL football player type, similar to I am. We don't look like we're professional athletes. So, but that yeah, that's interesting that he yeah probably the but, same size. Yeah, he came in and anyway took care of him. Uh, really nice guy. I mean, uh, his wife was was 
brought his wife in with him later on through the course of dealings, but I ended up selling him six or seven cars over the course of the time, and he was just one of many. But just what a what a class act. What a great guy. Yeah. Yes. No, that's wonderful. So we're going to take a little breather, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Granite Automotive and kind of, again, the progression of your career into owner of a dealership. Hey guys and gals, it's Brett Matice, the host of the Midwest Marketing Podcast. I need you to do me a favor really, really quick. I promise you it won't take long. However you're listening to this here podcast, go on to iTunes, Stitcher, maybe you're just on our website, whatever it is, go give us a five-star rating. See those stars? There's going to be five of them. Just go to the one furthest on the right-hand side, click that one. Maybe write a few quick nice words about us. Unless you don't like us very much, then don't write anything at all. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Let's get back to listening. I'm sure the process is longer than the way I'm going to phrase this question. Um, but so when did you decide like it was time that I wanted to kind of move into run? I mean, as a GSM, you run a dealership. But when did you come into like the ownership side of things while well, moving from Denver back into Rapid City? Well, I think it was like you said, it was a long process of, of first of all, uh, understanding uh, how each department operates uh, having the ability to to grow people within the organization. I, I always said that if you can't bring the best out in somebody, then you really shouldn't be leading a team. And I really feel that, um, you know, over the course of time that, that I have proven that I can build a team, you know, working for John Elway, uh, moving back to Rapid City, going to work for the McKee Automotive Group, really the only two dealerships I worked for in my entire 33 career. But how did I make the transition? It was probably more by kind of like the same way I got into the car business. It was probably pure accident. Uh, McKee Automotive Group was going through a transition. Uh, there were three partners, uh, Ross McKee, Mark McKee, and Steve Kaufman. And at that point, one was getting ready to retire. Uh, the other two, McKees, were uh, at the point of, of breaking off. One had children that were coming up into the business. The other one didn't. And so they were going to uh, separate and uh, divide up McKee Automotive Group. And I went with uh, Ross McKee, who I had been running the the sales side of all of the McKee Automotive Group. And one day through the division, Mark went and, and picked up the Ford store and, and Avis and Abra Auto Body and Ross picked up uh, the Nissan store, Nissan Hyundai store, the Buick GMC store and Collision Center. And he asked me, he said, uh, Basically, I can't run these, you know, and he didn't have any kids in the car business. He said, would you be interested in being my partner? And uh, being the operator of, of now Granite Automotive. And uh, I said, well, can I talk to my wife? <laughs> At that point, it was a pretty big transition for me to go from operating and running a sales department of an automotive group to running uh, fixed operations, uh, collision repair, parts department, and the sales department. So after visiting with my wife over the weekend, uh, we thought, you know, maybe it's time for me to, to 
advanced my career again. I had been the GSM for for about ten years, and uh, so we took that leap in from from GSM to GM to to dealer operator, and uh, it's been a very interesting road. Yeah, obviously. So um, can we just make sure I want to touch on Granite Automotive is kind of our umbrella. There's a lot of things that fall under the Granite Automotive umbrella. I know you touched on the Collision Center, which now is called CarStar, you know, Auto Body, um, both the Nissan store and the Buick GMC store. Um, I know we had Hyundai as well. Can you talk about how that kind of shuffle of stuff goes on in the automotive world? Well, it kind of goes back to the point of dividing up McKee Automotive Group back in 2012-2013. After we divided that up, well then the next process came along where the manufacturers wanted you to build new facilities. So at that point, uh, Granite Automotive had had Hyundai Nissan up in the corner of Omaha Street and Buick GMC and Pontiac down on Omaha. Well, obviously Pontiac went away. Uh, We had Nissan Hyundai and Buick GMC and we were designing facilities out at uh, East Mall Drive for Buick GMC. We wanted to get that one done first. Obviously it was the mothership. So we designed the Buick GMC store, started the building process of that, and then we started talking to Nissan and Hyundai of building the new facility out on East Mall Drive next to the Buick GMC store. Well, through the correspondence and the design of the facilities, we couldn't come up with a design that both manufacturers would agree with and play together. So through the course of discussions, Ross and I uh, decided that we couldn't build two new facilities for each different franchise. So rather than building a Buick GMC store and then a standalone Nissan store and then a standalone Hyundai store out on East Mall Drive, we would pick the best uh, of the two. And it was Nissan was the, the bigger franchise. So that's we designed and built the Nissan franchise and we sold the Hyundai franchise. Okay, absolutely. So there's obviously a lot of stress and a lot of time-consuming stuff and a lot of uh, hard times with um, owning a business. Just, I mean, you have to manage a lot of people and a lot of personalities, but there's also a lot of fun times too and a lot of of good times. What are some of the things that stand out to you um, in your kind of tenure with Granite Automotive since you guys have taken over that? And um, what are some of the things that stand out that you're really, really proud of? Well, what has always stood out to me in this business has been people. I, I am every day I more and more amazed at, at individuals, whether it be on the employee side or the customer side, and how many great people there are out there. If you want to know what I'm proud of the most is our ability at Granite Automotive to raise, hire, train great quality people. And what I mean by that is if you take a look at our granite management staff, uh, over 90% of our management staff is homegrown. They've been with us for 10, 15, 20, 
even 30 years. Yeah, which is, I think, as people can tell from our conversation here, it's, it's very people-oriented, and people are important to everything that you do and has been through the entire process, which is really important as uh, people and humans are the center of, of all business. They drive business, business, and they make business go and work and, and connect with customers as well. So across the span of your 33 years, like you said, a lot has changed, um, and I'm sure a lot of it is attributed to technology. Is that the biggest change that you've seen in the automotive industry since you got into it when you pulled into that Rocky Mountain Nissan in Denver? I, I would say that the automobile industry has changed complete 180 degrees. You know, it went from picking up a telephone book in Denver and calling 100 people a day by going down the telephone list, the directory, to, to uh, everybody's online. Every it's social media, it's it's websites, it's you know I mean, it's just we don't see the foot traffic anymore that we used to. I mean the hundreds and hundreds of people uh, over the course of a month driving onto the lot, they're all driving through the internet at home, and they make their decision and they come and see one and a half dealerships and pretty much. If you take good care of them, they'll buy a car from you. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess uh, one last question before we wrap it all up here. If you could choose one vehicle across history time, was there one vehicle that just captured your imagination that you're like, I would love to have that vehicle? Do you have one like that? Well, this is not going to be very impressive for you, my answer, because I'm really not – I've never been – uh, that impressed with older vehicles. I'm not really a car enthusiast. Uh, I'm not a collector. Um, I, vehicles were always a need for me, a, a transportation need. Um, but I can tell you, if I had to pick one, it would be a 2020 GMC Denali Crew Cab Diesel Half Ton. Yeah, they're Fancy, fancy, nice <laughs> trucks. Oh. Uh, I mean, just the technology of the vehicle, the 10-speed transmission, the, you know, the, the 25 miles to the gallon on a half-ton pickup. I mean, we never heard of that. I, I think the first pickup I ever had was maybe three or four miles to the gallon. Yeah, that's incredible. I just, yeah. as you know, got rid of a couple, I don't know, probably six months ago now, my 2005 Dodge Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that thing got like 13 to 14 miles a gallon as a, you know, as a, a small, a pickup. small yeah. pickup. And mm-hmm. so to, yeah, 25, that's unheard yeah. of. Absolutely unheard of. It's crazy. So yeah, it would be a 2020 GMC Denali half ton. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is one of your sales guys, um, I can't remember who it was now, explained it to me as people wanted the technology and the just niceness of a Mercedes Benz with the workability of a pickup truck, and that's what GMC did. Is they oh, just like yeah. put the luxury into also something that will get the work done as well. That Denali pickup is a brand of its own. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's really, it owns, I believe, over 40% of the, the expensive truck line market. So, yeah. yeah that would awesome. be my pickup. That's, that's the pick for sure. So I guess that's all I got for you today. Um, if you have anything that we didn't touch on or you want to say quick to all the listeners out there. You know, it's, 
You know, if I was going to tell anybody anything right now with what's going on in, in our world today, it would be don't panic. You know, this too shall pass. Uh, coming from the ranching industry, dealing with snowstorms, dealing with drought, dealing with market changes, going into the automobile industry, dealing with high interest rates, dealing with uh, shortage, supply shortage, dealing with, you know, uh, all the things that we have to deal with that interrupts our business. Uh, I can tell you that we've come out of it better and stronger every time. So be patient, you know, don't panic, and this too shall pass. Absolutely. Very well spoken. Um, other than that, thank you very much for coming on. I appreciate it. Um, if you need a new car, I'd go run on down to Grand Automotive, whether that's, like you said, foot traffic or on their website. Uh, I drive a Nissan, my parents drive a Nissan, and my dad's going to test drive a GMC way back home, uh, I think, this week, he said. So we're believers. We're believers in the brand, that's for sure. Um, other than that, thanks for listening, guys.